This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you stories from where we broadcast, and that's the small town of Oxford, Mississippi. And this one comes from a student of the University of Mississippi, Aubrey Riggle. Two months away from graduating high school with a completely clean record, I get put on room suspension. It started with the most rash decision and easily one of the best decisions I have ever made. I bought a puppy. My roommate Macy and I went to Mississippi School of the Arts, a residential magnet school in South Mississippi, and were on the way to Jackson, Mississippi to a concert. We were stopping by Walmart for snacks, but got distracted by a cardboard sign, sloppily written in Sharpie, puppies for sale. Of course, as any two 17-year-old girls would, we stopped to pet the puppies, which a little old woman had in a box in the back of her SUV. They were $400. Three small balls of fur bounced around in the box. Any of the six-week-old Shih Tzus could have fit into the palm of my hand. I reached down to pet the only brown one, who started biting my fingers. I swooned, collecting him into my arms and pleading to my roommate, I need him. We could sneak him into our dorm room, she proposed, originally as a joke but I took it as approval. I mean, within the last year alone, we had safely hidden a hamster cage and a fishbowl in there already. How much harder could a puppy be? I only had $70 left in my bank account from a job I'd worked over winter break. So I called my mom. $400 is a lot of money, she said, along with a string of other oppositions. Your dad would never agree. You're about to go to college. But he's so cute, mom. I'm at your sister's soccer game. Call me later. She hung up before I could even offer that after working this upcoming summer, I would be able to pay her back. I'm getting this dog today. Please don't sell him, I told the breeder. She agreed reluctantly, but turned away other potential customers because of my claim on that little brown ball of fluff. My roommate and I devised a plan. The banks were closed, but she had some blank checks from her grandma. To my complete surprise, her grandma agreed, and Macy wrote me a check on loan for $400. Our disbelief turned to excitement, and heads held high, we triumphantly marched back to the breeder. Fed up with our shenanigans, her forehead furrowed, and she grunted. I can't take a personal check. Please, ma'am, I promise it's in there. It's my grandma's account, Macy bargained. The breeder actually called her grandma to confirm, and agreed, saying... Fine, but give me your phone numbers and addresses. We scribbled down our contact info onto the check, and I spent my last $70 on a crate, collar, and a bag of dog food five times the size of my dog. We decided to skip the concert to figure out just how we would sneak the puppy past security and into our dorm room. We found a cardboard box, tucked him inside, and crossed our fingers. We're going to get caught, I thought as we snuck into the building. Dog supplies and hidden puppy in tow. My heart beat fast and my hands trembled, but security didn't even look up as we passed by. After safely making it back to our dorm room, we summoned our best friends in the hallway to come meet him. Each teenage girl melted over our illicit roommate as we excitedly recounted our rule-breaking. Our contraband needed a name, 
And after hours of playtime and contemplating, we called him Rebel. Our news was like wildfire, spreading through all seven floors of our dorm hall. I heard, do you really have a dog in your room? At least once per class period. My friends often came by to play with the hamster already, but now every day after the last school bell rang, like mosquitoes to light, a plethora of teenage girls, some who I barely knew, came to see Rebel. For a whole week, Rebel stayed in his crate quietly while I was in class, slept in my bed with me at night, and even got snuck on and off campus inside my purse for walks. Despite our nightly room checks by the floor mom, we just put Rebel in the bathroom, and no one noticed our secret zoo. It seemed we were in the clear. Aubrey Riggle, please come to the principal's office. The school secretary's voice rattled over the intercom. In a cold sweat, I felt the eyes of all of my classmates turn to me. Twelve years of grade school under my belt, and I had never been called to the principal's office until now. My principal, a rosy-cheeked woman with round hips that spilled over the sides of her rolling chair, looked at me squarely across her desk. Aubrey, we found a dog in your dorm room. They caught me. Unsuccessfully controlling my nervous laughter, I asked, did you find the hamster and fish too? She laughed, crying me for more of an explanation. To my disbelief, much more amused than angry. I've had them for about a week. A lady was selling them in the Walmart parking lot. I couldn't say no. The dog's gotta go today, she said with a chuckle. But there was no way I could make the five-hour drive home and back for school the next day. Unable to get rid of Rebel, the school gave him to the dance teacher till next weekend. Placed on room suspension, I was defeated. After my punishment was doled out, my principal, the executive director, and the curious school secretary escorted me to my room to remove Rebel. Even though I was in trouble, my principal cooed at him as he climbed into her lap and licked her face. So what do I need to do about the hamster and fish? I asked her. Her brief look of shock erupted into wild laughter. I thought you were joking. The hamster and fish were placed in the nurse's office until I returned home to my parents, who were not happy about our household's unexpected additions or the $400 check they now had to mail to Macy's grandma. Several weeks later, Rebel was allowed, this time with the school's permission, to be my escort to senior prom. He was a local celebrity, and my friends and I took turns spinning him around on the dance floor. Now... Four years later, I have collected many more memories with Rebel, and our memory at Mississippi School of the Arts has not faded, as administrators still tell our story to every new class as a precautionary tale. And thank you, Arby Riggle, for that story. Her story, Rebel's story, and a great pet story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. Much of what's known about legendary NFL quarterback Brett Favre has been kept between the goalposts. But our own Greg Hengler took a drive three hours south to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We broadcast from here in Oxford to learn the rest of the story, as we do so often here at Our American Stories, of Brett's life. And what we've come up with is a five-part series about a lot of things. This one has to do with the day. On December 22, 2003, the day after his father's fatal heart attack, and his father's name was Irvin, Brett Favre played in a must-win Monday night football game against the Oakland Raiders. Favre dealt with the grief in the best way he could imagine. He played his heavy heart out. It's easy for anyone to see love of the game was one of the many reasons he was such a fan favorite. But on this Monday night, Brett was playing for a second love, the love of his father. Yet Favre shared with Greg Hengler a third love that was present on that miraculous evening. Here again is Brett Favre with part three of our five-part series. That game, of all the games I played, I played 321 games, played in two Super Bowls. Um, by far, not, not even close, the most pressure and the most nervous I've ever been was the Oakland game. And um, it wasn't, it had nothing to do about will I or will I not play, as people were thinking leading up, understandably so. I mean, do you think he'll play? I knew I was going to play, but I was so afraid to, that I wouldn't play. I wanted to honor my dad by playing the lights friggin' out. I didn't want to just play, even though. I would have gotten a free pass. Say you play, we win, you play crappy. People say, what do you expect? Can't even believe he played. I didn't want I didn't want to even go down that road. I wanted to play like I'd never played before. And the odds of that happening just because I want it, I wanted to do that all the time. But this time more than ever. So the pressure was enormous. And, and in my experiences, when the, when the pressure is almost too big to bear, it's hard to perform. Very hard to perform. You, you, you know, you just can't settle down and everything's moving so fast, which is what was going on that night. But it was like, as the game unfolded, with each play, it was like, man, that this is, this is. I knew then. I mean, I was. I've always been a um, a Christian. Some some days better than others. Some years better than others. But you know, we we were born and raised. We went to church, and as kids, we didn't pay attention. And you know, we got got whippings and got chewed out, you know, sent to the cry room. And then, you know, through my trials and tribulations, I've leaned on the Lord more in, at times than uh, than other times, I think, like most people. But I knew that night, based on what I just told you, there's no way that was a sign. I, I, I've used this several times. I didn't realize at the time. But at halftime, 
I mean, I knew statistically that this was was unbelievable. I, but I wanted to win the game. But I, I was well aware of like, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, this this is crazy. But at the end of the game, it didn't dawn on me then. It didn't dawn on me th that year. It didn't dawn on me a year later. It dawned on me years later that you know. And I've I spoke to a group at Murfreesboro, this high school up there. It was a Christian group last year. Oh, I, I spoke at Liberty University this year, uh, or actually October, I think, and, and talked about it there. I said, you know what, I don't know about, and I was kind of really asking a question to the audience. I said, do, do you ever like find yourself saying, I want a sign, Lord, sh give me a sign, show yourself, or you know, make this curtain move or whatever. Um, you know, all of a sudden this billboard says, you know, I am real or you look, you give me a sign. And I said, and it never works out that way, right? And you, go, and you forget about it. You go on and you, maybe you do it again. I said, I was, that, that happened to me. And I said, one day I realized that the sign was how I played. I said, you know, you have to keep in mind that I played at, at, at halftime. I had already, if that game would have ended, I, it would have been the best game in my history, statistically speaking. And it's just a half. Now, keep in mind that my father just died. I, I never studied because when I, I got the news that he had died, I mean, I, you know, my mind was elsewhere and we needed to win this game and I needed to play and play well but I didn't need to play that well and I prayed and prayed and prayed Lord I want to I want to honor my father I want to play well I don't want to just play I want to and I don't even know if I was really specific but I think he knew what I was asking and that's the sign that the God is real um it wasn't some little angel comes flying in and drops a football. Although angels may have been placing the balls in certain places, but I, two two touchdowns through four touchdowns at, at, by halftime, which is not not unheard of. Um, but two of the touchdown passes were two of the best passes I've ever thrown. Now people watching probably wouldn't know that. They they'd have to know the why angle and precision had to be perfect when you're when you're when you're not running out of the pocket you had run out running out of the pocket and someone's chasing you have to turn to the and then make a over the shoulder throw to a guy in the back corner of the end zone that has to drop only one spot and it did and then there was two more that we're just totally opposite. Oakland could have caught it just as easily as our guys. And they didn't even come close to it. They were in position, like just fell down. So that's, you know, that, that, that game uh, is, is important for a lot of reasons. At the time, we needed to win the game to continue playoff hopes. Um, but when I came back for the funeral, it sure made life easier for everyone because that's what people were talking about. 
and I'm not, I don't know of many people that are good at funerals or wakes. I, I particularly am not very good. In fact, I like to, if I go to one, and my wife's aunt passed away about a month and a half ago, and we were real close with her, but my my way of handling those situations and being in that environment is to make light of the situation, talk about stories that made us laugh. I don't I don't like being down, never have, and so that had I played bad, coming back home would have been even worse. All the people I know what they would have said, baby. Hey. You you played. You did your best. I don't. I didn't want to hear it. I wanted to come home and be able to celebrate. Um, and so, I'm thankful that that we were able to kind of enjoy and rejoice about it. And you've been listening to Brett Favre talking about his performance on December 22nd, 2003, the day after his father Irvin suffered a fatal heart attack and died. And Brett's so right. He knew he would have been given a pass if he played poorly, but he wanted to play lights out. And my goodness, I watched that game. I'll never forget it. He's right about those two passes. They were two of the best passes I'd ever seen anyone throw. And not alone. The whole country was rooting for him. The whole country was praying for him to keep it together. It's routinely called one of the greatest games ever played. And folks, this was an away game... In of all places, in a pretty tough place to play, Oakland. And Brett that night was 22 for 30 at 399 yards, four touchdowns, and three yards shy of his best game ever. And in the biggest night of his life, God showed up for him. Brett Favre's story, and by the way, this is part three of a five-parter. Go to Our American Network and listen to the rest. This is what we love to do, folks, is bring you the story that is the story not between just the goalpost. And we're bringing you this story because, as you could tell, there was a lot more going on here than just the material world, grass and turf and X's and O's and plays. And we all knew it when we were watching it. Brett Favre's story, a story of a game, a story of a love affair with a sport, and a story of a love for a father and a son, and God, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and now it's time for the McClellan Files where we go deep inside the life of one of our regular contributors Bob McClellan someone you don't know but whose life and whose voice you're sure to be captivated by today Bob shares with us his letter to his mentor Bill Walker Dear Bill I can already see that telling a story about you is going to be very difficult not because I'm short on material, but my emotions keep pulling me away from our teacher and student relationship to something much deeper and more complex, something much harder to express. I'm reticent to talk about your thoughts or feelings and very reluctant to try and explain them to someone else, let alone pretend to understand what's in your heart. 
I know my own runs in all directions when I think about you, as no one has impacted my life as much as you have. There are probably many people out there who will enjoy the academic aspects of our relationship and the enlightenment you brought me, but it's just at the surface. When we met, I was imprisoned and lonely. I was an unhappy corporal. At 21 years of age, I had no idea of where to go in my life or that it was even capable of going anywhere. It was just all too chaotic. This is the poem I wrote at 21 years of age and at the outset of my college career asking for help. The answer and the messenger, however, that arrived was not what I expected. The poem is called The Maze. How appropriate. I sit amid a maze walled in by my desires. Sitting here with me is this love I have. Someday, if I ever get out, I'd like to show it to you. I don't know how I got here, for it's certainly no place to be. Though you're just on the other side of the walls, you are still many miles from me. So if you love me a little and are tired of waiting about, you might find your way in and help me to get out. And then you appeared, disguised as an English professor. We are 50 years down the road in our friendship, Bill. We still speak almost every day. Even today as I write my stories, I look to you for advice and comments. I may never be able to explain the why or the how of our friendship, and if I did, I doubt that other than you, there was no one I could explain it to. I wasn't looking for a father. I had already left one behind, and I hardly fit the role of a loving son, which leaves me without an answer or explanation. Maybe our friendship is just best shared between you and me. I was sitting in the back of the class one day in May of 1970 when Mr. Walker walked in and advanced to the podium. In his arms were some books and notepads and copies of a syllabus for the English 1A course that he would teach. He wore a French beret, plaid shirt, tweed jacket, blue jeans, and cowboy boots. Well, not quite the dress I expected from a college professor, but since I hadn't been to college before, I guess I had no idea of how professors dressed. He was 20 years older than I, came from a wealthy Connecticut family, and had an incredible education and experience and immersion in the world of literature and books. As they called the name of the students, he paused when he reached mine, purposely mispronounced it, and moved on down the page before I could respond. I thought to myself sitting there, gee, he must really be pissed off about the comment I made to him after his speech class last semester. On the day I was assigned to deliver my speech in his class, he decided to let the students rap about the war in Vietnam. For the next two weeks, I sat there ready to go, but everybody wanted to discuss their feelings about the war. Being just released from active duty in the Marines, I didn't want to talk about the war. I didn't care about Vietnam anymore. I was done. I was out. I was a civilian. I wanted an education. I answered up when he called on me in that class. You should all run down the list if you're all so interested in the war. Finally, I just ran out of patience and I cornered him in the doorway to tell him what I thought of him and his class leaning down under that French beret and putting my face right up to that full beard of his, I said, you know, Mr. Walker, I don't like this class of yours. It doesn't have any structure to it. Now, 
sitting here waiting for this class to begin, I thought to myself, this is going to be a tough semester. A few weeks later, Nixon invaded Cambodia and four students were shot dead on the Kent State campus. Colleges erupted all over the country and some closed with riots breaking out. After two nights of outrunning tactical police, throwing rocks against their great shields of armor, and hearing the metallic clunk, hiss, and hiss of gas canisters enveloping me in a caustic fog, I went home for the night. I returned to my apartment at midnight. As I climbed into bed, I saw my English textbook. I had not opened it in three weeks. Opening it up to the assigned story was the title, The Celestial Omnibus by E.M. Forrester. By 3.30 a.m., I had read it three times, and the next morning, I was seated in the first row when Mr. Walker walked in. He was surprised to see me sitting in someone else's seat, but he said nothing about it. Neither did its prior occupant. Throughout his lecture, my arms ceaselessly kept being raised until the hour ended. I was on him immediately, asking questions and trying to understand more about this strange story that had such a great effect on me. He tried to ignore me, and when we reached his office, he took a number of large books off the shelf and abruptly told me, If you like that story, then you should read these. I'm very busy right now, and he abruptly closed the door. Summer came early that year because all the campuses were closed due to demonstrations. Working nights as a bartender gave me ample time to read each and every volume he pushed into my arms. When I completed them, I searched for his address and I walked to Woodland Avenue in Palo Alto to return them to him. His house was more like a bungalow or cottage. The front of it had a brick path with flowers running along the edges. The cottage was shaded by leafy trees and bushes in front of the windows and closing it from sight to make it more private. When he answered the door, he was surprised to see me. I offered the books and said I read them and wanted to return them, but the school was closed. Then I extended my arms towards him and put the books between his hands. It was an awkward moment, and then he invited me into his house. Crossing over that threshold, I stepped into his living room and was astonished by what I saw. All the walls were covered in bookshelves, paintings, and inscriptions of all kinds. I could see a trail of shelves meandering down the hall into his bedroom in the back. They were everywhere, from floor to ceiling. The only sound was a record playing some classical music. A couple open books sat on the arm of his couch. On the wall, there was a sign that had an inscription that read, quote, Let us consider the way in which we spend our lives. End of quote. I asked him who said that. He told me it was from Thoreau. Well, I didn't know who he was, but I thought I just should try that advice sometime. I went over and I read the names and titles of the many books that covered the walls. I had to ask him, did you really read all of these? I felt as if I was standing inside his mind, that to understand who he is, one would have to read all these books. And when we come back, we'll continue with the McClellan Files. And by the way, if you have a friend or a neighbor who's a great storyteller, send them our way. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. I bumped into Bob on a visit into the San Francisco area. A friend of mine had told me to sit down with him. And about four hours later, I was just mesmerized in his life experience 
and his writing talent, and he does something completely different for a living, uh, having to do with financial services. But my goodness, what a storyteller and what a writer. And by the way, if you have stories about important mentor relationships, a teacher, that encourager in your life, who changed your life, again, send those stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We love hearing from ordinary Americans. We're terrific writers as a, as a country, and we have terrific stories to tell. When we come back, we continue with Bob McClellan and his talk and his letter to Bill Walker. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. First responders in this country, and the men and women who serve in uniform around the world. And we particularly pay tribute to those who've paid the highest price. Today, we want to remember the life and death of Detective Micah Flick. On Monday, February 5th, 2018, Detective Flick was shot and killed while conducting an auto theft investigation in Colorado Springs a city of nearly 475,000 people, about 70 miles from Denver. Several officers attempted to take a suspect into custody, but the man began to struggle and then opened fire, fatally wounding Detective Flick and two other deputies, a Colorado Springs police officer and an innocent bystander. Today we bring you clips from Detective Flick's funeral featuring his brother-in-law Chris and widow Rachel. My name is Chris Brown. Um, I'm Micah's brother-in-law. I'm here to tell you about Micah as a family man, his humor and his quirks. So I'm going to share a couple stories with you. Well, I, I knew he's, he's loved pop music, but this last Super Bowl Sunday, we were gathered at the Flick House, and we were celebrating with the Zynans, and I had to bring an extra TV over um, so that we had enough space and people could watch it in different rooms. So I was in the room, and I was, I was bent over like this, plugging in some cables, and Micah was standing behind me, and the next thing I hear while I'm bent over is, can't keep my hands to myself, no matter how hard I'm trying to. And I turn around to him and I, and I said, Michael, why are, you, why are you singing this right now? And he said, you were bent over and I couldn't help myself. It was a nice view. <laughs> the last uh, year, really, he started getting serious about his fitness. Um, really serious, and his partner, I come to find out, really gave him a hard time about the fact that he was eating Chipotle burritos every day. Now, every cop in here loves a good Chipotle burrito, but it was getting a little out of control. Am I right, Trey? Getting a little out of control. So Trey gave him a hard time, and he realized that he needed to get his body back in condition so that he could better serve the community, and he did that. But what most of you don't know is when he would come home from a workout, no matter who was there from the family, the next thing he would say is, I worked out real hard. He would talk about his workout and he'd say, you want to smell me? <laughs> Are you kidding me, Micah? Come on. And then, even in the last few weeks, he was like, you want to see my six pack? 
And that's who he was. When he gave his life on Monday, he was in the best shape of his life. He was. He was rock solid. Micah is not a victim. He's not a victim in this. Because of his sacrifice, he is a victor. He has conquered death. Because of Christ, he is victorious in his death. Micah, our many talks about God, our family, and our profession are going to stick with me till the day that you greet me at the gates of heaven. I promise to you that I will walk by Rachel, and I will provide her with all the love and all the support she deserves from her brother. I promise to you that I will teach your kids to love the Lord. I will teach them of your sacrifice, your integrity, and your character. I will love your kids unconditionally as if they are my own. I love you with all my heart. You are my hero, and we have the watch. And lastly, love always wins. So first of all, I just want to thank you so much for coming in the snow today. I know that that added a lot to the logistics of this funeral, and um, it made it harder, and we didn't need anything to be harder today. But Micah and I love the snow, and we have loved um, skiing and snowboarding as a family. And any time there was enough snow, Micah was well known to be making um, very intricate snow forts with the kids. So um, today feels really perfect to be honoring Micah on a day that um, there is snow. And so thank you for doing that. We tease at home that Micah had no game, none whatsoever. Many, many gifts, but no game. And um, you, he told that, you know, we met at the Briargate YMCA, and one night he told me he wanted to talk to me, and I was like, oh, what's that mean, you know? Been dating for a couple weeks. And um, he, when we get in the car, and he said, I want you to be my girl. <laughs> that was how he asked me out, like, like to have like a, you know, we are going steady kind of relationship. And so... <laughs> If you can imagine um, all of his eloquence and professionalism at work, none of that transferred over. <laughs> um, <laughs> Micah loved to sing. He didn't remember the words of the songs, and um, he didn't know he didn't know the words, though. Like, he thought that what he was singing were the words. And so it's our first uh, year married, and, you know, we're getting ready for our family festivities, and he's in there ironing his pants and getting ready. And I'm in the bathroom doing my makeup, and I hear, A child, a child, dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite. <laughs> and I was like, there's no kid with a tail in that song, babe. And he had no idea. He was like, what? Because he was just singing, singing, singing. And that, um, that was like on the regular. Like I don't think there was a single song that he actually knew the words to. But that didn't stop him. Um, another thing that he loved to do that um, I felt privileged to, <laughs> I guess I should say privileged. I wish that he had shared that silly side with more people. But I'm so privileged that he shared it with me. But Micah loved to dance. And in the same line as his ability to sing, it was, you know, comparable. <laughs> but it was very sincere and often 
you know, we'd be cooking in the kitchen and listening to some music and he'd be, you know, showing me his latest moves. And uh, I loved him so very much. I love him now and I'm so proud of him and this opportunity to honor him because, um, you know, we knew Micah as our husband and father and his faithfulness. Um, but, you know, at his core, Micah was a hero and he was a man of excellence and integrity and he did everything with excellence. And, um, you know, I would watch him make this transition every morning from husband and father to, to his officer self, right? And so some days he'd be um, putting on a suit and some days he'd be getting into his khakis and his boots and then some days... He would be getting into his street clothes with his tennis shoes so that he could go undercover, you know, and choosing shirts that were two and three sizes too big so he could hide his vest and his holster. And when he was doing that, he was giving me, you know, kind of the rundown, like, this is our latest suspect, and here's kind of what we're thinking. And, and you know, um, I know the wives and the husbands of the officers in this can relate when you kind of start to go like, oh, I'm not really liking where this story about work is going. And I would say to him, not infrequently, babe, don't be a hero. Do your job and do it well, but don't be a hero. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with Micah is that he was a hero. He is a hero and he couldn't help it. He couldn't help it. On, on Monday at about four o'clock, he and his fellow officers were preparing for a routine op, something they do all the time, highly skilled people, very prepared, um, and, and came into an altercation with the suspect. And the suspect, um, open fire and Micah literally used his body as a shield and put himself between his killer and his fellow officers. And I don't know how you get much more heroic than that. His, um, his, his fellow officers on that op said, Rachel, I think we'd be doing multiple funerals if he hadn't given his life. And it's hard, I want to be jealous, and I want to have him, but I'm, I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud of a man so worthy of honor. I know that you are hurting, and I love you. I see it in your faces. I see the pain that you carry because of who Micah is and because what he represents. And I know that your wives and husbands are hurting because it feels too close, and I know. I know that there are so many people in here who get that, and you are good men, and you are good women, you are worthy warriors, and you are doing everything that you can to uphold the law with truth and justice. And I see that, and I affirm you. So I want to say to you, uphold the authority of your badge, not because you can, but as a sacrifice of love for your communities, for your agencies, and for your nation. We love you. And what words we just heard, words any of us would want to hear at our own funeral. Detective Flick's bride, I love him, I'm so proud of him. At his core, he was a hero. He was a man of integrity and excellence. And he used his body as a shield. 
I am so proud of a man so worthy of honor. And my goodness, you could hear the joy in her voice remembering how he loved to sing and didn't remember the words. We heard the joy in the brother-in-law's voice too, Chris. When he gave his life, he was in the best shape of his life. He wasn't a victim. He was a victor. Love always wins, Chris said. Detective Micah Flick's story, Police Week, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. We're about to hear the story of a bright, young, successful entrepreneur who recently quit his day job to follow his American dream. His name is Rich Benoit, and he's the star of Rich Rebuilds, a popular YouTube channel focused around his Tesla repair shop called the Electrified Garage, which is near Salem, Massachusetts. So far, it's the only garage of its kind, mostly because Tesla doesn't want anyone working on their electric vehicles. While not a title that our guest embraces, Rich has become known by many as the Tesla Hacker because of his passion and his ability to do what others have not. You know, I've always loved to take things apart. You know, a lot of kids are kind of naturally curious about things, like how the world works. You know, you see all these videos on the internet about, you know, kids breaking things or like climbing up on things, just to get a feel for the world around them, kind of figuring out, you know, how do I function here? How does this work? What does this taste like? Kids putting things in their mouths. For me, I had this infatuation with just taking things apart, just seeing like, how does this thing work? And luckily for me, I was fortunate enough to have uh, you know an, an engineer father that had all kinds of really cool stuff laying around. I mean, he had circuits, diodes, like LEDs, and he was an engineer. So it, it was really, really fun to see all those things in motion. Just like really feeding like my natural curiosity, like, hey, how does a watch work? Like, it's so amazing how these small little like uh, dials and levers and and anchors and gears and teeth that are all synchronized that keep the time and not only that but it's self-sufficient when you move you know these bands wind and unwind and it keeps the the motion of the clock going and it just that just blew my mind so i would just take things like that apart and you know he'd yell at me over and over again i keep taking them apart and it kind of led into bigger things like i'm like hey i want to take the stereo apart now i want to take my my aunt's VCR apart. Like I just had a natural curiosity for, you know, just how everything worked around me. I, I think I lost a lot of that touch in high school, unfortunately. In high school, it was mostly just based on work, you know, getting my work done. Uh, I had recently moved from my mother's house to my father's house, and that was kind of like a hard transition for me. So that a lot of that, a lot of that, um, I guess, curiosity and, and, and creativity was kind of lost in just me being like, you know, who am I? Trying to figure stuff out and, you know, just become a functioning adult 
uh, as, as to where I was. So I went through high school. I joined like the typical things like the physics club and like the science club and the math team and science team and all different teams to try to figure my way out and as to what I wanted to do. Like, you know, what do I want to be when I when I get older? Like, do I want to take stuff apart forever? Do I want to be a mechanic? Because I knew that I loved cars at that point. You know, slowly it uh, it kind of went into the IT field. And I figured to myself, you know, I want to be in IT. I want to fix computers because it was along those same lines of my natural, you know, curiosity about things like how stuff works, like how do computers work, how do computers process things at millions of calculations per second. And I was taking computers apart and I was like, this is must be a natural thing for me. Maybe I want to work on computers now. So I, I got into the IT field and um, it was that was fun. That was my mission. That was my M.O. One day. You know, as you know, I, I still I still love cars. One of my friends said, "He listen, you know, I know you love IT. I know you love cars and stuff. I've got this gig at Tesla, uh, this new electric car company. I got to bring one of these things over for you to see. And I said, okay, you know, I'll take a look at it. You know, I'm a gas guy. I love my Corvette. I have, like, all my, my toys and stuff. Was never really an electric guy. And he came over, and I saw this car, and he took me for a ride in it. And I said, I got to have this thing. This thing is absolutely incredible. And at the time, I really wasn't making a lot of money. <laughs> so when he told me the price tag of it, he's like, yeah, that's going to run you about, uh, you know, $100,000. So I said, you know, forget that. I, I don't have the, that kind of funds to, to, to invest in, in that kind of um, idea. But that bug stuck with me. So I said to myself, you know what? I got to find one of these things, man. I, you know, I found one on the Internet. Um, it was like 15 grand. I'm like, but 15 grand versus $100,000. I could do that. I mean, yeah, it was underwater. You know, it, it was a flood car. But, you know, I could fix that. Why not? Probably as easy as, you know, sticking your cell phone in the bag of rice. You know when you drop your phone in, in the toilet sometimes? Um, you stick it in the bag of rice and then you're good to go. I figured a car can be much different, right? So uh, I did that, bought it, and I spent about six months restoring it, like removing all the electronics. I had, by the way, I have no electronic background whatsoever. It's just the background of me taking the stuff apart of my dad's house. That's really all I had. And slowly over the course of, of several months I I slowly got it back on the road and as a result of that I also started a a YouTube channel where I would kind of just document what I was doing I would document you know me taking buckets of water out of the car I document me removing the seats I document removing the motor etc and it it kind of manifested into this huge thing where people actually legitimately enjoyed the story they enjoyed the storytelling they enjoyed the adventure of it all and it grew into a, a, a larger youtube channel and you know now there's a, you know there's several hundred thousand people that actually wait each week to see what i'm going to come up with next and it, it's kind of it's kind of cool and it's you know things have progressed from there and i ended up opening up a shop where we service and repair electric vehicles so uh, as a result of the channel you know a, a couple guys that uh former Tesla employees and a, and a former friend of mine, we started a company where we service and repair electric vehicles. So now it kind of went from, you know, it me being just a kid that used to take stuff apart because I had a natural curiosity for things, to me being a car lover, to realizing there was a, an untapped market for third-party electric vehicle repair. And now I have a YouTube channel and there's a company that exists where people come to to get their EV service and services like that don't really exist now because EVs are still new. There's only like a couple million of them on the road as opposed to hundreds of millions for gas powered cars. 
and it's it's like a thing now it's like a it went from just an idea me being a kid to, to feeding my natural curiosity to, to having a legitimate business and you've been listening to rich benoy and my goodness satisfying his lifetime curiosity ever since he was a kid taking stuff apart on general principle will i take stuff apart forever he asked himself he got bored in high school the curiosity almost drilled out of him but he regained it became an it pro and the next thing you know he's owning and running the electrified garage rich benoit's story continues here on our american stories I want to be like natural and as wholesome as I can because a lot of people just they have this like people don't honestly I'm just a regular guy like I'm not I'm not a multi-millionaire I have a passion for cars and in my driveway it looks like I run a, a high-end used car dealership but in reality they're just broken cars that I purchased and I fixed for really cheap and now I have a bunch of really nice looking cars you know so it's 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 pretty cool. All people are just like, "Oh, who's this guy? I think he is." I'm like, in reality, the you know a, a guy could drive by in like a, a diesel, like a 3500 diesel pickup, and that's a ninety thousand dollar truck easily, ninety to a hundred, depending on how you spec it out. And it looks like I have half a million dollars in the driveway, but in reality, all my cars combined are likely less than what he paid for his one truck. So you know, but there, there's a lot of value in 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 recycling. And just kind of, you know, not not throwing stuff away. I mean, if, if you have something that's broken, then fix it. Don't just throw it away. You know, we're we're a society nowadays where things are things are so inexpensive now that we think, oh, if something breaks, the only way to do it is to throw it away. And a lot of companies are saying, push that and drive that home. Like, yes, yes, throw it away, buy a new one from us, and they get more. But I'm part of the methodology that, as society, why should we why should we throw stuff away when it's perfectly usable? Tesla and I have this weird relationship now where um, there's this meme online where it's called a hate shake and Tiger Woods was congratulating someone that won the tournament and he he stuck his hand out to shake his hand and the look on his face was just pure anger <laughs> but it was a mutual respect like he was shaking his hand out of respect but his face and his body language said completely otherwise but a while back traction started gaining on the whole Tesla thing and one thing led to another, and I ended up fixing the car that I bought uh, a long time ago. And one of the struggles that I faced was that Tesla wasn't very... They were very reluctant to give me parts for the cars because they thought to themselves, wait a minute, what are you doing? Like, no one could fix these cars but us, so so what do you think you're doing here? Like, this isn't this isn't for you, you know, this, this, isn't, this isn't your battle here. Like, we'll, we'll be the ones to take care of these cars. These cars are high-end. They're electric. You've never worked in an electric car before. You have no credentials to do so. Therefore, this is our vehicle. We have every right to to service the cars, and you don't. So when I was building mine, I asked for parts. Basically, so I kind of hung up the phone and said no. And I said, well, what can I do? And they suggested, well, what you could do is you could buy a new one and stop wasting your time. So that, to me, that wasn't an answer, obviously. And um, that really resonated with me because I'm not... I was never used to that. I was never used to a uh, manufacturer really treating someone like that. I've owned BMWs before. Uh, I owned a, a Chrysler 300 before. And they, those were all prior accident vehicles. And I said, hey, my car's broken. Can you take care of this? And they said, sure. We'll happily sell you whatever part you need. 
uh, because we're a manufacturer and we will happily take your money. But Tesla had this almost, I want to say, elitist attitude where it was like, well, we're too good and you're not smart enough to do this. And therefore, it's not worth our time selling you anything. And it was a really weird, really, really weird attitude. And I, I didn't, it was, it was so strange to me. And like since then, I, I knew to myself, you know what? It doesn't matter. I have to fix this car and I have to show the world that I can do it. And, and I ended up doing it. So I went to Tesla one day to get a part. There's a guy behind the counter and I was like, hey, I need this part. And he's like, well, I can't sell it to you because you're kind of salvage. And salvage means, you know, it was a prior insurance write-off where the car was no longer roadworthy. He said, well, I, I can't sell it to you because I look up your VIN number and this car was in a prior accident and I, I can't help you with that. And I said, well, why not? Does any other company will happily sell me this stuff? He's like, well, I just, I just can't. It's, it's our policy. So I said, well, you know, this company is all about sustainability and being green electric vehicles. So why don't you want these cars back on the road? You know, you want these cars, these $100,000 cars where people spent thousands of engineering hours for it to rot into in a field. And I could literally fix this car with my eyes closed. And they, it didn't really matter. He sent me packing and his name was Chris. I, I always remember that. And I, um, a few months later, I went to an electric vehicle event and I saw Chris there, the same guy that told me no. He was at the event and I'm like, hey, what's up, buddy? And, you know, we kind of started talking and he said, hey, you know what? Um, I don't want to work for Tesla and I want to apologize for treating you that way. I didn't mean to do that. Those are company rules and I'm sorry. And I said, hey, don't even worry about it, man. I said, well, what do you, what do you, what do you know at Tesla? Like, what do you, what did you do there? And he said he was in parts and he, he did a lot of really cool stuff there. And I said, well, let's let's do something together because I had a YouTube channel and he had a company called EV Tuning where he would kind of sell parts for EVs. And I said, well, how about we do this? How about I'll mention your company in exchange for parts? So he had a, a lot of really cool access to different parts that Tesla wouldn't sell. And we started facilitating a relationship from there. And as the channel started growing and growing and growing, people started saying, hey, well, can you fix my car now since you fix your own and Chris was doing a lot of uh, side jobs as well fixing customer cars and his private time and I said Chris let's let's do something like how about we start our own company where we fix these things because it seems like there's a market to repair electric vehicles that people haven't really tapped into as yet and he was all for it he said let's just go for it and we that's what we did we we started electrified garage and um that was an adventure in itself. We, we determined we're going to go ahead and start a company where we service and repair electric vehicles that no one's ever really done before because it was electric vehicles are so new and there's so few on the road and logic dictates that they don't need service and repair. So we're like, what are we even doing? This is this is ter- literally terrifying. You know, we don't know whether it's going to work out or not. We decided, you know, let's go for it. And, you know, I was using very different means of marketing because the, the my YouTube channel started getting so big that I was the YouTube channel was a driving force behind the company and this is such a rare you know strange world we live in because so many people are used to spending advertising minutes on commercials and TV uh, to promote a business in a shop and I'm I literally have tens of thousands of dollars worth of advertising power in my hand because of the YouTube channel so I was I was using the channel to promote the garage and we opened our doors and people were just waiting. We had over a thousand people come to our open house and it was just amazing. It was just, it was such a weird thing to translate something I was doing in my spare time, kind of hobbling around in my basement 
to to like an actual job that has you know we have employees we have payroll we have taxes and it's it's like a real tangible thing we're not just kind of sitting around in basements theorizing ideas we're we're actually doing something and changing the world in a way it was just so so weird to me such a weird thing what's interesting is that tesla never really said anything to me uh as a matter of fact at the open house tesla actually came to the open house when i say tesla a lot of the local tesla guys came to the open house because the local tesla guys they were local fans they were fans of the channel fans of what we were doing it goes to show that there were people at tesla that were kind of for the cause like hey what you're doing is awesome uh, they brought a lot of employees there and they had you know, 100 test rides to help sell more Teslas. But the biggest discrepancy is myself versus Tesla corporate. Tesla corporate isn't really through with that because I guess to them it almost seems like, you know, when I call out certain things and ideas and, and, and actions that Tesla does, you know, they see it as a, as a black eye in their eyes. But, you know, I see it as me. Hey, listen, I'm trying to make you guys better. When I see something I don't agree with, you know, I'm going to call you guys out on it and I could actually get information out there via the channel quicker than they ever could. You know, they could have an announcement and by the time it reaches up to upper management and they think about how they're gonna send that message out, I've already released five or 10 videos on it and they're kind of way behind the curve. It's just so, so weird. It's, it's such a weird thing to, to think that I went from being some guy that was dumping out water, salt water out of his car and a couple years later, and the owner of a company, you know, I'm the CEO of a company that that's for a market that's, you know, an emerging market. It's just really, really weird. There's a lot of responsibility, I feel. And it just feels, I don't want to say uncomfortable, but definitely, uh, definitely humbling. It's, it's crazy to think that people, there are people out there, adults, kids, whatever, that look up to me as a person to model themselves after. And, and that's kind of, um, that's, it's kind of crazy. That's kind of crazy. That kind of American, actually. It's kind of beautiful. You're listening to Rich Benoy, star of Rich Rebuilds, a popular YouTube channel. He's also the owner, the CEO of the Electrified Garage. I love that he talked about this throwaway society. Why should we throw stuff away when it's usable? And he's living that axiom out every day. Rich Benoy's story continues here on Our American Stories. What a weird thing, huh? Social media is, um, you don't really realize just how powerful it is, and it's pretty wild. It's the new TV. TV's dying. Everyone's cutting the cable nowadays. I can't remember the last time I actually sat and watched the TV show. Everything's online. You download something immediately. I'm very proud of being ahead of the curve because I don't know what our success story is going to be. I know this, the odds that, you know, small businesses don't always last forever. But to know that we made our mark somewhere as the first to do something, or one of the first to do something, is is really all it takes for me. A lot of the things that we do nowadays, we don't realize that those things can go away in a matter of years. I remember when I was a kid and I was kind of messing around with my with my parents and my, my dad's electronics. There used to be VCR repair stores. There used to be TV repair stores. Now we literally throw TVs in the garbage. I remember back in the day when I, I bought my first 60-inch TV, 50-inch TV. I thought I was like the man. I was like, yeah, I saved up all this money to buy a 60-inch TV. And you go into people's houses and they're like, they have their regular 40 inches, like the CRT televisions. They're really big and clunky. 
but the technology has advanced so far and so fast that literally everyone has a flat screen TV in their house now. Everyone has a, a 30, 40, 50, 60, sometimes three or four TVs in their house because you could literally go to the store and buy one for 200 bucks. That ties back into the whole social media story where, you know, if you wanted to get your company out to the public, you used to use the yellow pages. You used to register your company with the yellow pages. You, you would call your local newspaper and you would buy advertising space on a page. And now I could pick up my phone. I could say, hey, come to my shop, press upload. And I, that's a that's a marketing campaign that would be worth tens of thousands of dollars back in the day. Or, or even TV. Even you would call up and say, hey, listen, t- Mr. TV Station. Hello, Channel 5. I want to run an ad at four o'clock in the morning for my company. Here's here's some money, can you run it? And then they'd run it at that time because it's not in premium, but it would still cost you a fortune. And no one would watch it. You don't know who your target demographic is. You don't know who your audience is. But nowadays, you know, you, <laughs> you can get information in your hands as well as others' hands, all with the, the snap of your fingers. At the shop, the Tri Garage, on a day-to-day basis, what we do is um, we live in the Northeast, so there's a lot of suspension issues with the cars. The the Model S and the Model X, the, those Teslas are unsuspectingly very heavy cars. The battery packs below the cars that the cars run on are about twelve to thirteen hundred pounds a piece. So that's twelve hundred, thirteen hundred pounds of just weight just sitting there underneath the car, making for a great you know low center of gravity, but. It, they're just heavy cars, so their suspensions are very prone to issues, especially in the Northeast, where there's a lot of road sand and salt on the roads, causing corrosion and other buildup on the suspension components. So we do a lot of suspension work, a lot of brake work, a lot of alignment stuff. A lot of the times, the cars are, are, are electric vehicles are susceptible to a lot of the things that cars that are powered by gas are, minus the engine components. So you still have squeaks, you still have rattles. Uh, you still have computer issues. You still have glitches. You still have window regulators not working, excessive wear and tear on the cars. There's a lot of things that go wrong. Uh, a lot of the cars are similar to the gas in the sense that they have four wheels and they move when you have the accelerator pedal down. But that's where things kind of stop, where instead of a, a gas engine, you have a motor. Uh, in that motor, there's bearings that wear. You know, there's still moving parts inside an electric motor. And those things are are serviceable parts that when things start grinding and wearing down, they can be replaced. We do some conversions as well. A customer came to us and said that um, the model tests that they have, they didn't like the performance. They didn't like the actual battery and range size. Uh, so, you know, each Tesla has their own designation for range, like how much range you get. Uh, there's, there's like a, a 75 kilowatt hour car it will get you about... 260 miles of range uh, there's cars that have 100 kilowatts that get you over 300 miles of range and there's 60 kilowatt hour cars that gets you less than that you know you have 200 miles in some cases so a customer came to us and said hey listen I like my car and Tesla is not giving me much on a trade so therefore I want you guys to modify this car so that it's new and updated and I don't have to sell my current car so we did that he came to us and he had a 75 kilowatt hour car which gives about 259 miles of range according to him it wasn't very fast it was about the zero to 60 in about i want to say four seconds or so maybe four and a half seconds and he said he wanted it to be the fastest and the best and the baddest car that he could find and we did that so we actually found a donor car 
the donor car was a, a wrecked car that we found at auction. It was in a scrapyard. The thing is rolled over. We actually took the components out of it. We took the larger battery and the powerful motor out of it. And we also a lot of wiring harnesses, et cetera, et cetera. We actually converted his car to have over 300 miles of range as opposed to the, you know, the 260. And instead of zero to 60 in four and a half seconds, it now goes zero to 60 in under three seconds. So, you know, the, the things we can do are pretty, uh, pretty amazing. There's not really many places that you could get that done. Tesla will not do that for you. I think one of the reasons why they don't reach out is because I guess what would be the point? They're probably just kind of standing back and casually observing because again, I'm not jumping up and down and saying, oh, I hate Tesla, the worst company ever. Uh, a lot of what I'm doing is just kind of like fact-based. Like, hey, look, this is this is how it is. This is my experience. Uh, if your results may vary and don't let this distract you from the fact that these are great cars still. If they weren't great cars, then I wouldn't have owned three of them. Well, I think I've owned probably actually no seven at this point. They know the power of social media, and they also know that even though I'm not perfect, I could make very reasonable and and convincing arguments against a lot of their practices, and they know that, and they know I could also influence a lot of people. So, so one of, one of my biggest things is I don't just shoot from the hip blindly and just, you know, bash the company or just arbitrarily say negative things, you know, all the things, all the constructive criticism and feedback I have are things that I've seen, things I've seen, done and heard. And it's different for me because not only do I, you know, I'm around these cars 24 hours a day, I drive one every day. And I also own a company that services and repairs them in terms of knowledge, you'd be hard pressed to find someone to go against. I'm probably the probably one of the last people you should probably you, should, you know what I mean? Like not, not I mean, it sounds bad. Like I, I feel like I'm tooting my own horn, but from a realistic sense, it, it'd be difficult to kind of go toe to toe against uh, an individual like me because I have the experience. Very, very few people, even the people that sell the cars, don't really know as much as we would. Even the people that, um, from an engineering standpoint they may not necessarily know a lot because we have the physical access to the car that we touch these cars every day and you've been listening to rich benoy and he's the star of rich rebuilds a popular youtube channel he's also the owner of the electrified garage and my goodness what you're hearing isn't the sound of a guy beating his chest it's the sound of competence born out of curiosity which is a quintessential american characteristic And my goodness, he's building a business, and he is loving on Tesla. It's a company he loves. He has criticism of the company, but my goodness, you can't love a company more, or at least its product, than Rich Benoit. He owns the car, he services the car, he talks about the car, and I'm sure he has sold a lot, a lot of Teslas. When we come back, more with Rich Benoit, his story here on Our American Story. When I really started working hard was when I was trying to build and establish my YouTube channel as well as work my full-time job. That's when I was working because I was working literally two jobs. And one of those jobs paid the bills and one of the jobs was my passion. 
Now, my passion was card. My passion was entertaining people, believe it or not. I've always wanted to be an actor. And the whole YouTube channel was my outlet. So, like, that was my passion. Like, I just love telling stories. I love making jokes. I legitimately love entertaining people. And this kind of stems back to me getting into IT. I realized very quickly that it wasn't about the tech. It was about the people. Because where else can you go to where you get to interact with that many people face-to-face besides maybe a sales job or, or you know what I mean, or, or an IT job? You get to like literally interact with every single person in the company. It's one of the few jobs that you have a complete encompassing effect on every employee in the company. And to me, that was, that was huge. I, I, at night, I worked on my YouTube channel. I worked on the cars. During the day, I worked at, um, at, at my IT job. And after a while, the YouTube channel was growing and the income from the YouTube channel was growing as well. So there was a certain point where I was working at my full-time job, making a full-time salary, and the YouTube revenue was growing to the point where it was approaching my salary. Now, when it comes to your passion and when it comes to what pays the bills, you really have a decision to make here. Are you going to follow this pipe dream and entertain people with silly videos on the internet that may not even be a thing anymore, that could just go away? Or do you do what kind of feeds your family? After a while, one of those things is going to start slipping. Like you can't manage, you can't have those two strings pulling you at the same time because eventually you're going to have to go in one direction or you're going to get torn in half. And I I didn't really realize, you know, like what was going to happen after, after some time. But the way you know that it's your time to go, there'll be a major sign. There'll be a painfully obvious sign that it's your time to go. I, a lot of people limbo back and forth. You know, should I do this? Should I do that? You will definitely know. And and my defining moment was when um, I was on the, the, the Joe Rogan podcast and I was at my full-time job. I got an email from Joe Rogan's uh, manager that says, hey, listen, Joe saw your article in the Boston Globe about you fixing Teslas. He wants you on his show. Joe's in California. I'm in Boston. We couldn't be any further apart. I said, you know, I got to go to this thing. Like, this is going to be amazing. This is going to skyrocket my career. The problem was, was that I didn't have that kind of vacation time. So I went to my boss and I said, hey, listen, you know, I need this time to, to kind of not be here and he said well, there's no one to cover for you because another person is going to be out during that time as well <laughs> so, so what do you do you know that's that's the defining moment that said I'm not making what I make at work at this at my quote unquote passion but if I work even harder I know I could and I said pretty much right then and there then I have to quit my job then so I literally quit my job I had no no health insurance. I had I had really nothing. I, I had really no plan. I just knew that I had to go and I had to follow this path. And this was probably a month after the shop opened their doors. And a lot of the YouTube money that I was making at the side while I was working my full-time job was funneled into the shop. Every spare dollar I had was put into the shop. So I had no money. I never took a salary from the shop. I don't take any pay whatsoever from the shop because I know that 
they were two two guys, two young men that left their full-time jobs at Tesla to follow this dream. So I I said to myself, I, I have to this is the sacrifice I have to make. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go on the show. I'm going to promote the shop. I'm going to, this is what I have to do. This is my mission. And I knew that if it didn't work out, maybe there's a way I could find a job elsewhere, but I knew I had to take this shot. And it was, it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. It was, I've never, I never looked back. I was, I was so scared as to what was going to happen next. Am I going to be okay? But I thought that with the extra time that I had when I wasn't working a full-time job, that would have more time for me. But no, absolutely not. When you're when you're an entrepreneur, when you're when you're self-employed and it's your business and your company and your brand and your image, you will never work harder for anything else ever. When you go back to a, a full-time job, or if you were to go back, you will never work anywhere near as hard as if you've had your own business. Or company because that is you that is yours you're building your dream when you work for someone else you're building their dream you're 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 helping make money for someone else and what they do is they determine whether or not to give you a part of that cut you know at the end of the day your hard work there's no correlation between how hard you work and what you're compensated for what the benefits are when you work for someone else because you could do whatever you want and after that year, you have the review. They still they ding you and say, "No, no, no, this is gonna work. You can't. This didn't work out so well. Here's your five percent raise." And you can look at them in the eye and say, "Hey, you know what? But I I worked so hard. Like, what's going on?" And they say, "Well, the company doesn't have money this year. Try again next year." When you're an entrepreneur, when you work for yourself, what I'm noticing, and it's probably because I'm very new, but there's no time off. It's every minute of every day is what's the next step? What's next? What can I do? How can I show the world this? How can I prove this? How can I do that? And it's it's such a, an amazing and an empowering feeling that even if, let's just say, something came up where I was making you know less than what I made before, I would still follow this path because... It, there's something about passion. I, I never really knew what passion was until I went out on my own and I was able to make my own rules and just do whatever I wanted to do because there's something to be said about that. There's something to be said about creating and following your own path that it, it, it just can't be explained. Like every morning I wake up, I'm just, I'm so thankful that, that this happened and I can't encourage people enough to at least try it like take the dive obviously make sure you're safe and everything make sure you have uh you know have some financial planning and financial backing but but going off into your own lane paving your own path and doing what you want to do i would man i i can't like i almost want to tear up it's just so i feel so lucky that i'm able to do that so this is this this is i'm living my dream this is my american dream and this is thing i'll never forget too when I left, my boss said, are you sure you want to go do this whole silly YouTube thing? You don't know if it's going to be around X amount of years. This is a stable job that pays well. You need us. What he said. You need us. And I've never been so proud to 
exit something in my life than when I heard that. That you need us. And I, and I look back one year, it's, it, this is so weird, right? That this is all happening now. In a few days, it will be one year since I left my full-time job. In a matter of days. I am happier. I am more successful than I've ever been. And that's because of determination and hard work. And it's because of my own personal determination and hard work. There is no one that could dictate how successful I'm going to be, except for me. And my goodness, what a voice for entrepreneurship. I mean, it is good as it get, that is as good as it gets, folks. Are you sure you want to do that silly YouTube thing? The clarity, well, there it was. He knew what he had to do. You need us, he was told. And note the drive that gave him, the fuel. And that is fuel on the fire, folks, when people talk to folks who start things on their own. They want to prove that person wrong. By the way, that's not the reason to do it. But my goodness, it's the catalyst And my goodness, the way he talks about the empowering feeling of owning something and following your passion, even if he earned less, he said, he could never go back to not creating and following his own path. It can't be explained, he said. Well, he did a pretty darn good job of explaining it. And for any of you who've ever gone out on your own and started something, started a business, you know exactly what he's talking about. Or just created something, heck, started a church group, started a a Little League chapter or a PTA and really built it up so that you had ownership stake. We talk a lot about owning things and property and free enterprise here on this show because it is the lifeblood of America. The American dream is alive. You're hearing it in Rich Benoit's voice and in his life's journey. Again, you've been listening to Rich Benoit, and he is the host of a popular YouTube channel called Rich Rebuilds. Watch it. It's riveting entertainment, even if you're not a car person. And, of course, he's the owner of the Electrified Garage. Rich Benoit's story, a classic American dreamer story, here on Our American Stories.